and Ask. I'm Kevin Brittingham. Um, so today is my buddy Mike Pappas um, from formerly of Silencer Co. and more recently and importantly, uh, Dead Air Silencers. How are you doing? I'm doing great. I'd like to just say thanks for letting me come on your podcast. It's not very often that I can actually find someone that actually wants to talk to me, so I really enjoy it when that happens. <laughs> That's such bullshit. Um, no, no, it's true. You've got a very interesting and unique personality within our industry, which is super refreshing to me, and I think most of us that know you. Um, well, how are things going overall? You know, things are going really well. I've I've got very little to complain about, and I'm super thankful for how business is, you know, getting a little on the upturn, and, you know, it doesn't seem so panicky. You know, it's nice to kind of relax a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, starting want... a company can be rough. Oh, God, it is. It's it's so interesting and challenging, and I love it, and I hate it at the same time. And I, you know, I've been through it two or three times. And um, you know, I, I don't. When, when did you guys start Dead Air? We started Dead Air. <sighs> I got fired from Silencer Co. in the very very end of October of thirteen. As I recall, it was just a a day or two before Halloween. So um, I had no plans and didn't know what I was going to do at all. And about probably three or four weeks later, I got a call from Eric Rogers, and he kind of hit me with the idea of starting another silencer company. And I was like, hell yes. (laughs) Well, uh, who is Eric Rogers? Eric Rogers is the president of Dead Air, and he's kind of the guy that I would say, you know, kind of put everything together, and he wanted to start a silencer silencer company, and so he reached out to me, and then I reached out to Todd McGee, and Eric knew that BPI, who's our manufacturing partner, wanted to build silencers, but they didn't know how to do it. And I did not want to do the same kind of thing that we did with Silencer Co., where we did everything in-house and bought a bunch of machines and took on all that kind of responsibility and machine operators and, you know, just a ton of employees and everything. So it seemed like a really good way to, to start over. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, I think that's one way. I mean, you and I have got some things in common. Um, and I, I think when it comes to this, I've always, I understand wanting to control everything, but when you start talking about resources and just the amount of time in a day, um, my standpoint's always been in-house. I want as few employees as possible, and I want to only 
bring the things in-house that are very critical. And, and when it comes to machining or anodizing and things like this, there's machine shops and stuff on every corner. But, you know, I've always brought in, like, the robotic welding and EDM and some of the specialized things. And, um, you know, for me, years ago, before all this private equity and venture capital and stuff got into firearms, like when I started Advanced Armament, even 10 years after, you couldn't get you couldn't get financing for gun stuff, even if I wanted it. But, you know, I had never had debt as a result, which was very good. So it makes me very nervous to have something like that as well. I think you can partner with companies, vendors, and get great products, and it's, it's better for everyone. Because I want to focus on innovation here, you know, and, and product. I don't want to focus on the stuff you're talking about, you know, having 50 machine operators and having to worry about all that. Um, um, so well, I, I think we agree there. I totally agree, and I would put it in very simple terms and would say this. You may – everyone, probably most people anyway, have an auto mechanic and an accountant, and you would never take your car to your accountant, and your auto mechanic likely has his books upside down a little bit. In other words, I say do the thing that you do the very best and focus on that, and let someone else do what they do very best, focus on that. And I, the running a machine shop, I'm not a machine shop manager, and it's a, it's like a construction business. I just don't get it. Sorry. Like, I mean, I get it enough, but that's not where my passion doesn't lie in procedural operation and organizing parts. That's not fun for me. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, I think we're seeing, you know, the possible effects of that with your former company now. Um, well, Absolutely. Well, yeah. Let, let's start back there. Um, can can let's back up because there's a lot of things I want to talk to you about. But um, so that people understand, how did Silencer Co. come to be? Where'd you fit in there? What'd you do? Let's talk about the good times. Okay. I made my living as an auto mechanic, and I'm fancy myself as a little on the mechanical side and I kind of gravitated towards that and I was always really into guns. So I started to work at a retail gun store in Salt Lake part-time every other Saturday. Just I really enjoyed being around people and just being able to do kind of a gun thing. And while I was doing that, Jonathan Schultz happened into the store, and this is going to be kind of a little funny for you because you kind of helped this happen in a way. He wanted to order an advanced armament black box, and I was like, dude, when we get one, like, I'll, I'll sell it to you. I've got them on order, and when they get here, I'll call you, and you can get one. And he's like, no, I want to pay. I was like, no, I don't want to take your money and just let's just make sure it gets here. And that actually never happened, but we kind of got to know each other. And then sometime later, Schultz hit me with the idea. He said, I would like to start a silencer company if you want to do it. He didn't have enough foundational firearms experience, I don't think, to start it, but 
I'd like to say this about Schultz. He is certainly one of the smartest people that I've ever met and very, very, like he can learn anything. And he took a little CNC machine, a little mill, and like converted it to CNC and just a smart guy. So I was pretty comfortable with that. And then later... I was introduced to Josh Waldron, who was doing some woodworking in Jonathan Schultz's garage, and I happened to be over at Schultz's house, and we were talking about the whole silencer co thing, and I was introduced to Waldron there, and then we put a prospectus together and got investors and rented a building and I left work and we signed for our first CNC machine and I went back to work in debt and scared as hell. Back to the gun store. <laughs> yeah. So well, uh, that's yeah, kind of uh, in a nutshell of how it started. Well, that's that's funny. The black box caused a lot of hype, and it, it's it's funny now because I hear most people involved in silencers and probably most listening to this um, weren't even. Involved in guns when Silencer Co. started, and you know I've heard some of their um, even on. I listened, tried to listen to their podcast. I listened to one, um, but you know it's kind of the persona that they portray that they kind of made silencers mainstream. But it was funny. Josh Waldron told me the first time you guys came to one of my silencer shoots back when I was on Advanced Armament that Advanced Armament was the reason that he started a silencer company and he wanted to be like Advanced Armament. Um, so, it, you know, it's quite different than the narrative that I've heard, in, you know, in recent years. But that was that was kind of funny. Um, what what did you do? Like, what were your responsibilities? Well, when, start? when we started, I pretty much got, and forgive me, I don't take this like exact numbers, but I believe that we had seven investors and I believe that I brought five of those investors in so I was helpful to start getting money and then we decided to build a monocore rimfire can as our first offering and I didn't know what we were going to do exactly for that and I stressed and stressed over that a way to make a better can and that's when I came up with the idea for the half pipes or clamshells, if you will, for the sparrow. Yeah. And so we designed and built and started to sell that product, and that was the one and only product that we had. And then from there we went to – Schultz was still enamored with the black box, and that spurred the design of the Osprey. And we took the Osprey to one of your shoots, and it didn't actually have a locking lever and, like, lock onto the barrel like it does now. And that came up with the throw lever kind of basic idea to to do that, and that made that product market viable. And then we had two products. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that was a cool product in person. Those that wouldn't know, the the black box, so I came up with the idea for an eccentric kind of square boosted can 
Um, we built some prototypes. Uh, there are some videos online you can see. Um, but the silencer business was a little different than now. There were only a few silencer companies back then, and we, we were growing about 100% a year. That went for close to a decade. Um, we, you know, at that point with advanced armament, you had to place an order. We were so back ordered. I made you pay in advance when you placed an order, and it would take a year for us to ship. So we just, you know, we just didn't put the R&D into it to kind of finish it. Um, but, yeah, it created, like, a, a, a huge buzz, and, and people in the market wanted it. So I thought that was great timing for you guys with that uh, um, Osprey. That's what it's called, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, so um, you're right. it did help for sure. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Um, so what all did – so you did the, the clamshells, and did you do the monocore for the little – Sparrow can? Or no. That- no. Um, McGee, Todd McGee and Schultz found each other on a forum and then figured out that they were only about 50 miles apart in the same state, right? So yeah. they kind of got to know each other, and McGee bought 1% of Silencer Co., Todd McGee. Uh-huh. And Todd McGee had designed and built a Form 1 can that's very, very similar to the core in the original Sparrow. And that design of McGee's was tweaked into the original aluminum Sparrow. So I would say a foundational work done by McGee and, and Jonathan Schultz tweaking that into a actual marketable product is how that came to be. What um so where did it go from there and then you know how did you guys end up having a uh you know parting of the ways I guess well everything went along you know and everything was rosy and I think everyone was happy and we started to actually make some money. And when we started to do that, we ended up purchasing SWR for two reasons. The Spectre was hell competition for the Sparrow, so we decided that we could take the Spectre, make it our own, and then alleviate the bulk of its competition right there and make the money on it. And we wanted to phased into, of course, to do center fire rifle cans. And we got in that SWR thing, Henry Graham moved to Utah and worked at Silencer Co. and was extremely helpful in helping us to design and get a rifle can together. And that's when we came out with the Saker. And I would say the Saker is where I started to have falling out with. It had some mound issues, which I didn't want to, I wanted to fix, but we couldn't fix them. And we had gotten into a bunch of debt, and I had kind of a refusal to go any further debt-wise. So I still remained employed there. 
at Silent Circle, but I resigned as a manager so that the other guys could sign on a large loan, blanket all my obligations, and remove them so I was off of any personal debt. And it was shortly after that that I was fired after I pretty much refused to debt and wouldn't get on the program with the trifecta amount. Yeah. Silence Circle has done a lot of interesting things, but I will agree that mount was a huge turd. Um, yeah. I remember that shot show when that came out. I came to the Silencer Co. booth, and Josh Waldron and I were friends in, and I think we had just started the American Silencer Association together. And um, I think that's right. And he couldn't so I asked to see the can, and you guys had these little, uh, or they did if you were gone by then, but <clears throat> had these little, uh, um, you know, fake barrel ends with the flash hider on it and the cans on So I asked him to show me the, the can, and he didn't know how to remove it and had to get someone else <laughs> over there that worked for you guys to show me and take it off and install it. He didn't even know how to do it. And that, to me, is where I kind of realized he was a bit of a, a um, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to sound as mean as I normally am. But, you know, to me, I didn't. I just sort of viewed him as a fraud. It's like, you know, I'm so passionate about guns, and so are you, and so many people in our industry, and it's like, this is your company, and what a cool company. And you don't even know how to install or remove the silencer, like your latest silencer, the one that you're introducing at SHOT Show. Like, that was that was the reality check, in my opinion, and it, it kind of showed me who he was. Um, well... I totally agree with you, and on the, I mean, the reasons why things like that were done, rush to market, not enough R&D time, um, just plain not enough time of shooting and just making sure everything was okay. We were always under a financial stress. It was always kind of a either get this product out and make these sales or go out of business kind of a, you know, it was a little tenuous with the yeah. amount of overhead that we had and debt load that we had and need to get product out that we had. Yeah, but you're right. We should have waited and made that product. I'm, I mean, obviously that was my vote, but just one vote in with many and I got outvoted on a lot of things. Yeah, um, it, it's funny. I have been sent videos or been at shoots and seen more silencer cams launched downrange than, you know, in my 25 years of making silencers and designing mounts and doing all that. You know, I've blown several things downrange. Um, but, you know, that's part of R&D. But I, I, even in 25 years of R&D, I've never had as many cans launched downrange that I've seen personally of that mount, I guess, of uh, from Silencer Co. If that's the one that's in, like, the Harvester and um, some of the other silencers, yeah, they've had a hell of a time with it. Yeah, and, I mean, they've had their share of trouble with the ASR mound, and they've redesigned it and improved it a little bit on their newest product, but that trifecta mount became a horrific source of embarrassment in the black eye for us. It was kind of shameful. Yeah. 
Well, um, hmm. well, well, let's move on now. So, uh, what was your approach with dead air and the silencers, and what were the goals and lessons that you learned, and you know, uh, that had you implement new, um, you know, just a new decision making process into what you're doing at dead air? Like, why is dead air better? than what you were doing then. And I don't say that as a necessarily a big at Silencer Co., even though I very often say they're a marketing company and very light on engineering, which I will stand by that. But I just say it in the sense that when people say something to me like, well, how does your new Silencer at Q compare to the one at SIG or the one that you did at Advanced Armament, you know, in my previous life? And, uh, you know, I don't get worse at this. I don't forget everything we've learned. And so that's kind of part of this question is things that you did there, lessons you learned, of course your new stuff is going to be better, Um, you know, unless you're making the same mistakes, which I I know you better than that. So, sure. Well, I would say probably the simplest terms to put that in is silence recall what? started to make money and everything that we did was to sell product and make product that would sell and have a profitable business. Now, bear in mind that you had several different people and personalities there at play and the bulk of them wanted to generate income. So, I would say the core difference in a Silencer Co.'s approach and Dead Air's approach is at Dead Air, we build the cans that we want. For example, our our can. We build the Wolverine, and we we didn't know if the Wolverine was going to sell well. We assumed that we could sell some, but we didn't build it to make money. We built it because we really wanted that can, and our approach is we would like to build the things that we want and then hope that other people want them and we can make money at it. It's just to, it's a total product end versus a total marketing and income end. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's true with anybody that has a passion, you know. Like, I don't think I would be good at many other things, but I've always had a passion for this. And, you know, it's even when I talk to my children about things, um, you, you know, I've got three pretty smart kids. My middle one is exceptional, not that my other two aren't, but she just has an incredible brain. And, um, you, you know, me talking to her about business and things like this and, you know, just understanding happiness and what kind of drives me. And I can't imagine having a job I didn't like or wasn't passionate about because I've been fortunate enough every day of my life that I've worked as an adult to be passionate about what I do. And, you know, I tell them, it's like, you know, all three of you are smarter, smarter than me. Find something you're passionate. You know, I'm going to help you with your education and find something you're passionate about. And do that for a job because you will find a way to make money. Like, I, I, I don't really view that as something that, that's difficult. I think an interesting thing that happened with Silencer Co., you know, everything is kind of timing, too. And, and I think it's interesting timing. This is the first time in 25 years that silencer sales have been this slow. Um, you know, and it's a result of politics and all. Um, you know, you and I know what's going on and, and, and most people that are interested in silencer, you know, HPA and stuff. But 
um, I think that was really great timing for them. When I was fired from advanced armament in December, a couple days before Christmas 2011, we were many times bigger than Silencer Co. And yes. me getting fired, Remington ruining that company, not valuing the people, um, thinking it was just a product and they had an intellectual property, was a huge opportunity for Silencer Co. And the market was exploding. So they had the advantage to be able to produce, in my opinion, mediocre products, present them very well from a marketing standpoint, and then sell the shitload out of them. And it was very artificial. And I think that's where you get really, it's dangerous with debt, you know, when you don't really understand maybe the market conditions um, and what's causing spikes in sales and why you are growing at the rate you are, um, which, you know, I mean, we know now they're in huge trouble. Uh, Jason Chauvel resigned. Josh Waldron was removed from his position, and they made some bullshit title for him. And Jonathan, well, I don't, I don't know. It seems like he was removed as well. I mean, you, you know, we are in huge financial uh, crisis right now. It may not even be around soon. Um, but there's always room for the best. Um, and, and so I really think that, you know, I don't think really in terms of cost. Um, it, you know, I've just been around long enough to know we can make things. You know, we could just can we design things that are quieter or more durable. You know, you got to place limits on it. And, you know, it's even some of the silencers we do now. You know, for the first 15 years of my career, I really chased sound. Um, and, and I don't really care about it now because we can make things that are quiet enough. You know, like I hunt and shoot a lot now. And with a 22, I want it to be super silent. And I will applaud you on the masked 22 silencers that you guys do, which I think is like the new, new standard for uh, sound performance for a 22, which I think. The element silencer that I did years ago was probably in that position until you did this can, you know. Um, so that's awesome. But, you know, now I just think in different terms. Like, I want things to be lightweight, and I want them to be low back pressure. And, you know, you and I have kind of taken some different paths with the new companies as far as what I'm producing and what you're producing. But right now it's such a lean time. You don't have the luxury to just produce any piece of shit and it sell. And But I like it because, you know, it gives us time to really do R&D and develop r really good products for when the market does come back. Um, so I don't know. But I think the timing with them just got people there spoiled. They thought they were going to be raking in the cash for a long time. Yeah, well, you think it's never going to end. On the, on the employment thing, and I've told people this, I would never – suggest to a young person to do what I've done, which is the same thing that you've done. I've never looked for a job. I've just kind of been around something I've been passionate about, and it's turned into a way to make income. So I wholeheartedly believe that that can be done if you have some luck and and fortune and put some hard work into it. And I think you're right about the – that's very kind of you to say about the mask and that you're right, the element was always that go-to, just the can that just edged everything out with no BS. It just always did. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I will say I know what it took to do those things because I was in charge of them. And I found people who were passionate about it but didn't have, like, my propensity to, to risk. Like, I would rather – 
live in my parents' basement today for the rest of my life and get to do what I do now um, than make a shitload of money and not be proud of what I produce. And I think it's just something that's inside of me. Like, I'm just so competitive. I want to be the best. And what we did then was I had someone nonstop for a year. And back then, you know, now I do rapid prototypes, so we have shit done in a day. But back then, we had to machine it all. And I had a kid, and all he did was run, he had a lady in a mill. He ran them 12 hours a day producing prototypes of 22 cans, making very small adjustments. And we would sound meter every fucking day. And to where we got the <laughs> element to where it was that good. And, you know, and, and the Tyrant 9, which to me is still the quietest 9-millimeter pistol silencer that I've shot, um, you know, that was a decade ago. But we were doing that for a special operations group. They wanted 120 dB on a 9-millimeter pistol. And this isn't like – and uh, like I argue with CGS, a new silencer company now sometimes, because they post these absurd numbers that they're getting that I know aren't possible and um and that's one reason i don't do sound numbers anymore you know like we post numbers and all because you know some asshole say oh look at this this is a 20 db quieter um you know if you buy a can from me it's going to be the quietest or in the top few and you know that's good enough buy the silencer based on other things <laughs> that's getting off top but you know the tyrant nine we did the same thing we worked for probably the better part of a year making the quietest pistol silencer known to man for a 9mm. It was for Glock 19, and we failed miserably. You know, that silencer, I don't know what the Tyrant 9 is now, probably 126, 127, maybe 128 dB. But it was way quieter than anything else ever available at that point. And, like, I, I don't buy everything from competitors now, but... You know, I've gotten a few 9-millimeter cans in the past couple of years since we started Q, and we haven't gotten one yet that outperforms the Tyrant 9, and that was 10 years ago when I did that. But people don't realize the R&D that it took to get there. You know, and some of that Tyrant, some of that was funded by the government. Um, so, but it was someone's life for a year, machining that new baffle stack every day, and um, sound testing it, and that was someone's life for a year, and that's wow. what Yeah, that when you were saying that, I was just getting flashbacks of doing the same thing. Yeah, I, I mean, over, it is over and over again. Yeah, I mean, and it's cool. Like right now, to reverse engineer stuff and all that's very easy, and there's like a hundred silencer companies now, and there's a lot of them I think do a good job. Like, um, again, I don't agree with CGS and some of the stuff they've done. Like, you know, they said their 22 can was like 110 dB or something, and we get it. And, you know, it's 122 dB, and it's whatever, like 8 dB louder than your can. And it's that kind of stuff that kind of screws the market up a little bit, but hopefully they're just going through a, like, kind of a learning curve with that kind of stuff. Um, but uh, you, you know, I know their their rifle cans. I've heard people that have shot them say say they're great, but um, it's interesting to me. I was so impressed with your old twenty two can. We got one in. Um, it's interesting that like you guys did the monocore that Sparrow, and now this is more along the lines of like an element as, as far as uh, your mask 
in terms of its individual baffles and that sort of stuff. So, so what's the downside to a mono core that was very popular for a long time? Um, well, the the Sparrow design kind of, you know, whiteboard looked more like the sound is not as important as the ability to take it apart and clean it. And that was the part of the market that we decided to go after. Look, you can shoot this thing until it's totally clogged up, and then you can take it apart, clean it, and put it back into service all yourself without having to send it back and go through a bunch of hassle to get it ready to fire again. And we knew that the monocore would have first-round pop issues, but we decided to go with the monocore for ease of um, disassembly when it was dirty. And the aluminum, the first iteration, version one of the Sparrow was super easy to take apart, easier than the stainless version ever was. The <laughs> the clamshells had a tongue and groove on them, and they made a really good seal, and it was not impossible to get it stuck, but it was very difficult to get it stuck, and that was kind of the highlight that we sold it off of. So the yeah, I, I thought it was cool, and it's neat, too. Disassemblable silencers is just interesting because you can take them apart and play with them and stuff, too. Um, yeah, but, yeah, the, the mask, you went after sound there, clearly. Well, we decided to uh, – I don't know if I'm sure you've seen this, but as you put the shielded baffles together in there, then a little ridge will appear as each one of them has – a little ridge on that aligns to keep it from getting glued between those joints to the tube. So we yeah. have I better it comes apart easier than either of the sparrows ever did. So we have gotten that you can disassemble it when it's dirty and you're right, we decided to go after sound and just go for Try to set a new standard, just the same yeah, way well, with the tire line. Yeah, well, I, I applaud you. I think you guys did it, and um, yeah, it, it, it's a great little can. Um, you know, for us, it's interesting, like what we all get focused on. You know, in twenty-two, it should be a lot of sound. But one thing that I realize, like the element, generally the the baffles create such they're so efficient and create such like a cross jetting that dispersion, like your accuracy generally isn't as good with the element. As I got more into target shooting and working with guys that could really shoot, and I got into hunting, point of impact shift and accuracy is a big thing for me now. So, like, for instance, with our El Camino silencer, which is a shielded, very simple baffle, we were going after a few things. We had a sound requirement. I didn't care if it was necessarily the quiet, but I wanted, you know, low first-round pop. We wanted it to be quiet. Uh, I wanted to go with stainless steel baffles, but I wanted the can to be lightweight. Um, but I wanted to come apart very easily. But I wanted, you know, accuracy was a big thing for me. And so we kind of focused on that, which, you know, maybe I missed the mark marketing-wise um, with that. I mean, time will tell. But, you know, for me, most of the time now, I don't use Silence 22 pistols a lot. I use rifles more. 
Um, Agreed. But yeah, that can comes apart. Remember, I did a Prodigy, which was a monocore silencer <laughs> at uh, AAC. But this El Camino, like I can shoot 500 rounds through it or 1,000 rounds with the shielded baffles. You're right. The baffles just, I can shake them right out of it. They slide right out. Um, yep. So I, I, I kind of agree with you now. After you've done a monocore, I have. Um, yeah, the shielded baffles are kind of the ticket. The downside to some of that is stuff can get heavy. You know, that's something I focused on. Like, if I had one thing I didn't like about the mask, it would be that it's heavy. Um, Agreed. I would I would totally agree with you on that. But like you say, you've got to – weight was not an area that we focused on. It's like, okay, we're done. Throw it up on the scale, and that's what she's going to weigh. Yeah. I don't know how to make yeah. it any lighter than – not get a takeaway from something else. Yeah, I mean, that is the thing. You have to make a priority list, and people don't understand. Like, yep. when we do a sculpture or when we work on a gun project here or something, or ammo even, we're working on a new cartridge right now, um, we'll generally try to make a priority list of 10 items. And half the time, you don't even get to 10. But I tell you, you know, sound for me is not even in the top three now. Um, but weight's very important to me at this point. And probably it's just personally like I hunt and stuff. I don't shoot a lot of full auto. I don't shoot a lot of rapid fire on short barrel 223s. Um, so I don't worry quite as much about like erosion. Um, but some ways, some things I do is, is like, so we make primarily titanium silencers now and they're large diameter. And so that does several things for me. We can make components thinner. Um, we have a lot more internal volume. For instance, uh, our Thunder Chicken, our 30 caliber fast attached can, it's the length of the Surefire silencer. Um, it's about 8 to 10 dB quieter on a 16 inch 308. And a great thing about it on a gas gun is even in the same length going from an inch and a half, the Surefire silencer, to the inch and three quarter, our silencer, um, and with the Surefire, you have an internal spacer system, so your wall thickness gets very, the cross section gets very, uh, it gets very thick, and that takes up internal volume. We have 50% more internal volume, um, so the cans are lighter, you get less back pressure, um, you know, the cans will withstand more abuse, and then erosion, they have a larger diameter, so we run large bores through the silencers which help, um, you know, you lose a little bit of sound, but you get less back pressure, and um, you generally get less point of impact shift and better dispersion or accuracy out of that. So it, it's kind of where where I've gone, where, you know, like like I said, with you guys and Rugged, some of the other companies that I respect making nice stuff, making super durable silences that sometimes weigh a little more. So it is kind of... Well, you know, the market's big enough now, you can kind of pick, well, what's important, and we'll go after this segment of the market. Well, I and thank God that it's like that. You know, it gives your customer a, a chance to have several different brands or find something that's really tailored to what's important to them. So I'm super thankful that everybody has a little bit different take on it. I think it's good for the industry as a whole. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, and most importantly, you know, the consumer gets a wide array of choices and selections and um, 
you know, there's just a lot to consider now. And it is interesting to see how much, even since Silencer Co. started, how much the silencer market has grown. And, you know, you think about when you guys started Silencer Co., there was probably only less than 10 states where you could hunt with silencers. Well, there was that. And then remember, there was no distribution on NFA. Everything was either direct. It was all back room, you know, kind of kept under wraps, kind of semi out of sight. And now everyone then was like, well, that's not legal. And that's (laughs) totally changed. Yeah, everyone in in gun stores thought that 15 years ago. That's Um, right. That's exactly right. So that's that's pretty interesting. I'm going to go to my list of questions I had for you here. Um, Well, let's see. Backgrounds. Um, hmm. Oh. Well, you you and I and Gary kind of play this game about, like, bad 80s and early 90s gun stuff. (laughs) You know, like the future pal holster and you know, all these things where, like, younger people I freaking love how we do that, too. It never gets old to me. <laughs> no, it's hilarious because, you know, I think at times, like, in the gun store, when I was 16 years old, you know, working behind the counter and uh, all the stupid products that have come along over the years. Uh, so that's pretty fun. Have you, what, what's the last thing you purchased like that that was some stupid 80s or 90s thing that should have never been produced? Well... The very last really stupid thing that I purchased was a uh, one of those little Zip 22 guns. I know it's not, I know it's not old yet, but wait, in 20 years when I pull it out, someone will be like, "Dude, I remember that." <laughs> yeah. So I got <laughs> that, and the last really legitimate thing I'd been on the search for a very long time for a G43, and I found a really super clean G43. Well, I'm pretty excited about that. Yeah. What is um? Huh. What else? Oh, what did I have? Oh, why the name Dead Air? What's it mean? Why'd you name it that? Well, I'll tell you the uh, Josh Lakaitis. Tap, Rack, and Bang had drawn up that gas mask kind of logo thing. Yeah. And Josh and – I'm not exactly sure if Josh came up with the name or Eric Rogers did, but Eric was like, dude, let's name it Dead Air and, like, check out this logo. And I was like, okay, like, that seems cool. It doesn't (laughs) – I don't know if it really means anything, but – I liked it and thought, I can totally get behind that. Let's do it. Yeah, I'm sorry I had so much meaning there for me to. There was not a lot of really thought. We just kind of tripped into that. Kind of like when you name your kids sometimes. You just like, okay, I'm going to go with this, and then you're done. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's funny because out of all the stuff, naming things a lot of times is very difficult. You know, and I get the question all the time. Every time I do, like, an interview or anything, they ask me, well, what does Q mean? And I'm like, you know, it just really 
It doesn't mean anything. Uh, you know, I had a company called Advanced Armament Corporation, and for 17 years I had to type or write that shit out, and I swore if I ever had another company, I would have uh, just an icon. It would be the shortest, simplest thing that I could engrave really small. And, you know, and, and that's really all it means, you know. Um, no, but I think that's cool, and uh, the your – have always been super gifted in coming up with killer names. Oh, well, you know, yeah. On little marketing things, I, I've enjoyed that for the good part of my life. The, like the, one of my still favorite things is the bathroom sign with the dude holding the suppressed pistol. <laughs> Freaking love that. Yeah, yeah like I said a, that yeah, the, the girls' skateboarding company, because, you know, I've always been into skateboarding, and, and they're so awesome with, like, ripping off um, or taking creative license with other industries' logos and just being very creative, you know, a bunch of young people that um, just don't give a shit. And um, so that's where I got that from. Uh, but, yeah, you, you know, I mean, I've told the story a lot, so I'm 44 now, but about when I was 30, I decided I was just going to do things that's all. I thought we're cool with marketing. And I've yep. failed a bunch of times, but, you know, I think I've had some successes. And, you know, some of the names of things we did now, like, you know, I used to pick more conventional names, but I don't like a lot of the industry and the marketing, and I never have. And I want it to be, you know, now I just want things to be fun. Um, you know, so my son came up with the alternative animal names, and that's where we came up with Trash Panda and Thunder Chicken, and then I did the artwork for those. and. Um, and then the full and half Nelson from our silencers now. It's kind of an ode to, you know, me growing up watching wrestling in the South and, um, you sure. know, using my father is, is kind of the logo or part of the, you know, the, the marketing for those things. I mean, he's on the box and he's on Ric Flair's body on the sleeve and you pull it off and he's on Dusty Rhodes' body with the championship belts <laughs> on, under, on top of the body. And those are my two favorite wrestlers when I was a kid. Um, but yeah, I just think now, it's like I want to make the best stuff, and I could probably, you know, and if you make the best, you can name it whatever you want, and it's cool. But I think it should be kind of funny, and with time, I get sick of those things too. But I want it to be different than the rest of the industry. You know, one really hard thing, the hardest thing I've done in a long time was naming our bolt gun. Um, that was very, very difficult, and I've decided on the fix, which is a weird name. And, you know, I, I see people on some of the forums, people link me to stuff, and they're laughing about it and saying how stupid it is. And, you know, I, I just – I don't care, really. Um, but it seems to be uh, w well-received, and it's different, and you know, but not different for the sake of being different. But, you know, like one of the guys here wanted to name it The Solution, and I was like, man, that just sounds like we're trying to be – I don't know. It's a little too – Formal. How about, like, maybe this would be. I'm, I'm just throwing this out there. How about the final solution? <laughs> that, okay, that, <laughs> I could never say that without thinking the final countdown. That's why I'm not in marketing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the marketing stuff is fun. It's a way for me to be creative and have fun and try to differentiate, you know, our products, you know, to some degree or be able to market them slightly differently. Well, um, look, for me, I think it's just, I like the natural, you know, it just is what it is and not the mimicking. I mean, 
we can only see so many zombie and skull crusher and, you know, whatever kind of, we get into kind of a theme and then everybody works within that theme and it's refreshing to see, you know, not to be in the mix, you know, stand out a little bit, just be yourself. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a big reason you're adored by so many people in our industries. You know, you got a unique personality and you're different and funny. Don't take yourself too seriously and don't wear those five, seven pants and stuff. Um, okay. Well, what, um, how does dead air work in terms of you're in Utah, right? You got an office there. And the yeah, okay. Product. So, yeah. The basic kind of premise of it is Todd McGee, our engineers here in Utah, Gary Hughes, our sales guy, Rod Backus, our customer service guy, and myself are all in Utah. Our president of the company, Eric Rogers, is in North Carolina. We have two investors that are also in North Carolina, although be it that they are, as it were, fairly silent in day-to-day kind of operational kind of things. And then EPI is our manufacturing partner, and they're near Atlanta. So yeah, right just down the of, from the old advanced armament from my house. That's right. I think I think they're just a few miles away from that facility. Yeah, some of, some of my old employees, yeah, yeah, I think work there. That's awesome for them. Yeah, that's right. They do. You're right. So it's, I mean, it's like I, I think it's pretty common and getting more common that you can actually run a company with people in different locations. I thank God for the telephone and email, and we don't really need to be like in the same office. Yeah, I agree. I agree completely. Um, okay. Well, what uh, what's some of your favorite stuff right now? Like, what what are what are a couple of your favorite silencers that aren't dead air? If you have any, or if you even buy competitive silencers or anything. No, I do. I um, like I I really I really like the stuff that you're doing. Obviously, I. I, I like that. I thank you. And I don't. I hate to say this, but look, I'm just going to be honest. I I I really like that 9K from Silencer Co. I think that's a solid little can. Yeah, uh, I agree. I think that's their best product. I agree with you 100. percent And I I really like some stuff that Thunder Beast does as well. Yeah, I think they I'm, produce good good quality stuff. I like, like most of their mounting solutions and things like that. Um, yeah, I like their stuff. I agree with that. Yeah, I really like and respect the shit out of Ray. And I've got a 338 brake attach can from them, and it's phenomenal. So I... I like that. Yeah, I'll have to think about that's a big I like some of the um arm attack. I've got a little their little teeny micro rimfire can. That's a cool little can. I don't I don't even know who that is. Who is that? 
is uh, Jeff Burnett. He does a he's just a kind of a smaller company, but he does some pretty cool stuff, and he makes like a little. Um, I believe it's uh, three baffle, like a little mini rimfire can. Yeah, you can shoot twenty five, and I'm actually um, Taylor Pickerell's threading an old um, twenty five ACP, a little crime gun for me. I'm going to put that can on. It's going to be freaking <laughs> awesome. It's going to be totally like. It's going to be like totally 80s liquor store knockoff kind of a feel, I think, when it's done. Like a Jennings, you know? Oh. Uh-huh. I'm going to send you a case of Mad Dog or something for it. Um, night Train, I think, is the new thing. I've never had it, but I hear Night Train is what you want to drink when you're doing that. But I, I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah, I'm not. But, uh, I'm, not I'm willing no. to try it. <laughs> Uh, well, um, well, what else? What else? What's up coming up for you guys? Anything you wanna that you're working on, or what are you excited about that's coming up? Well, I think the biggest thing for us, I think our biggest hole right now is in our product category is in our lineup a uh, 33 caliber board can. So I'm kind of excited to do that, and maybe. Do a uh, can for a caliber that you're working on. Yeah, I'm excited about that. Um, yeah, so the 86 Creedmoor, which is 338-33, like you're talking about. What? How do you think? Will, will you guys um, do like a, a heavy use can, like a Stellite stainless can, or what do you think you'll do for 338? Or do you want to say? We're kind of toying with that back and forth, so I'm just, I'm not 100% sure yet. Maybe two. I mean, maybe the idea is to do one of each. I don't know. We're going to about to have to decide, though. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we, I I tell you, the first monocore can I ever did was the Titan can um, at AAC, and everybody knows the Titan QD. Well, the original steel thread mount Titan, when I sold to, some Scandinavian Special Forces units, and it was a real big heavy can, but it was a two-inch diameter. That was the quietest center fire rifle we had ever, like supersonic, we had ever metered. Um, that thing was wow. phenomenal. And then we did the um, U.S. military, which we won a bunch of contracts with that can, the M2010 and SOCOM and different things. <coughs> um but we made it – it's funny. It went to about an inch and three-quarters in diameter. And you know why that was? No. They uh, Well, they wanted titanium because they wanted it to be half the weight, right at 20 ounces. And so we had to go with titanium to do it. So the can was super expensive to make. All the first, like, hundred we delivered were all machined. So, you know, it was like six hours of machine time or some crap. But um, – the only titanium tubing that we could find was somebody had special ordered some seamless tubing of a certain size, and it's right at, like, inch and three-quarters. And that's the only tubing we could find to meet the timeline that we had. So I bought that tubing. Then, for all the subsequent orders and contracts, we had to have that tubing made because it was a non-standard size. <laughs> so it was kind of funny how that worked in the end. 
Um, well, that is that is an odd chain of events. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like what's the reason this is this is smaller and this weird size? Well, because this guy had a truckload of tubing that somebody paid half for and had the mill make it, then didn't take the rest of it. So we've got it on closeout, and it's to the spec that we wanted. So we just changed the size of the core and made them that way. And then we ended up making, you know, like the initial contract was uh, five or 600 of those, something like that. But we ended up making, you know, probably 5,000 of them. So I had to continue to have tubing, the special tubing made, which the first run was very cheap, and then the subsequent runs were very expensive. Um, so that was kind of interesting. But, yeah, the 338, yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. You know, I always... It's like, oh, I want lightweight because I like to hunt and stuff. And our new gun, the fix, it's super lightweight. But when it comes to 338, if you're talking about full, you know, full bore loads, the guns are so heavy anyway. Everybody like pumps the guns up in the military. You're going to drive to the bench or wherever you're doing it, and you're going to lay down and shoot or sit there and shoot. And the heavier the can, the more recoil reduction you get and stuff like that. So I don't know what the answer is either. Yeah, and I, most of my, well all but maybe one instance all the big game animals that I've ever shot in my life have been shot with the Barrett 82A1 oh, so I'm that, dude, I'm that dude that drives around in the truck and spots and then bells out of the truck and shoots but it's different It's, I mean that's all done out west where it's open and you can see forever and you can get up on a little bit of a hill and get a great vantage point and so I've never been much of a when I think of hunting rifles I think of me driving around in a truck with the heater on then just bailing out and putting the hammer on something <laughs> yeah well, it, it, it is funny because I spend most well most of my time is spent working and with my kids but um anytime that that's not the case it is my time is hunting like once a year you know me and my girl may go on vacation but most of our vacations like we went to new zealand last year to hunt and you know there's two things like i go on some tough hunts where i have to get a little fit and i have to hike you know or hump a gun some amount of time and it, that concerns me but yeah the rest of the time like i was just actually hunting with um uh in texas uh, with some guys with with money, and they've got this giant ranch, and they have these big F-250s with a rack on top of it, and you drive from oh, there. Yeah. And, yeah, so, like, I was thinking, holy crap, and we were shooting some big animals this time. Do you know what a Neil guy is? I don't. It's like this big Indian animal, but really tough to kill. It's the first thing I've encountered that I couldn't kill with a 308 or a 65, like reliably, because where their ranch is in South Texas on the Mexican border, it's very thick with mesquite and whatever, you know. You can just lose animals very easily there because um, everything's low to the ground and very dense. Uh, so you don't want to have to track animals there. And um, But, yeah, had I known that, oh, man, I would have taken, like, my 338 or something. You know, like, I'll shoot. 1500 meters with my 338 Lapua or my 300 Norma mag, not 50 cal. I'm not as strong as you, but you know, yeah, in that, yeah, in that instance, like, holy shit, I could have carried a 40 pound gun. All we're doing is sitting in a seat and I've got a rest and all 
and I could shoot, you know, like I shot, uh, my nail guy shot it close to 500 yards. And, uh, you know, I did it from the top of a truck in a high rack on a rest. So I could have had any gun. I didn't need the fix, you know, super little lightweight gun. Sure. Maybe that would have been, maybe they need a socket mount on that, and then, then you can just bring your M2H bar. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I did talk to him about that before I went, you know, having like a, uh, yeah, a socket mount, have a panel or something where you just put a gun on. You know, they have them for the, the Barrett and all, like a carriage and a panel for the Barrett, but you could do it for any gun. Like if I owned that ranch and had those trucks, that's what I would do because you could go, you know, spin that thing 360 degrees. Um, you know, you could make great shots from it. You remove a lot of human error and, you know, hold your gun the whole time, which is great. Uh, you can just lay on the butterflies if it's not working out and walk it in. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can do it with the nil guy there because it's uh, you can kill it any time with anything you want. Um, what else do we have interesting or to talk about? Um, dead air. You got a full line of silencers except for um, three thirty eight. You're working on. Um, you think you guys will get into other stuff other than just the silencers? You know, I I hope that we do, and we talk a little here and there about um, different things. So I would I would say yes, and you know, we just came out with the sites that we're doing with K and S. So I would, oh, I would yes. say yes. We're not going to be just silencers, but I would tell you that it's our core focus, and it will always be that to us. But I would like to branch out because, like you say, there's there's a lot of different things that you want to do. Yeah, those silencers by or those sites, by the way. Um, you know, I haven't seen them. Obviously, uh, we didn't even go to shot, but um, I did. I did see them on some of the forums. What a great idea! Um, so yeah, those, those are cool. That's, that's pretty neat. Um, that's one of the neater things I saw actually. I probably had half a dozen people send me, send me, uh, you know, a link where that was posted somewhere online. Um, so that's pretty cool. Such a simple, stupid idea, but yet, like, we need something like that for red dot sites and cans and, I, yeah. I don't know. We just kind of thought of that as, uh, like, why hasn't anybody ever thought to do this? <laughs> yeah. One well, of those, uh, who knows? Yeah, it's it's neat because it reminds me of, like, some of the aircraft sites or things I have on my machine gun, you know, where you have these flip-up sites for, you know, different sightings. And, you know, sure. it makes sense. And, and that's a cool thing about, you know, when I was talking to Trey Knight doing a, a podcast with him, and, you know, I spent – so much time with Trey over the years, and you know they have the largest gun collection probably in the world. And uh, yeah, that, yeah, I think they call it the Institute of Military Technology now. You know, I mean, it's their gun museum is probably bigger than every silencer company in America put together, like physically. Um, and, and I don't know, I don't know the square footage, but you could ride around in a golf cart just to view the gun collection. But, you know, all the ideas, Knight's Armament has come up with so many cool, innovative products from the military over the years, and almost all of them, they draw from that collection and older guns from, you know, World War One, World War Two, 
you know, stuff that the Czechs did, the Germans did, you know, that the U.S. did that we've forgotten about. Um, So, you know, that's pretty cool because as long as we have metallic cartridge, there ain't going to be a whole lot of new shit. Um, So, you know, it's just constant evolution and improving stuff that's out there now. If I get a kick out of it, and you probably do too, you've been around silencers long enough now, it's like every year or two somebody comes out with something they say is, you know, the the size of a – you know, a little medicine bottle, and it's going to make a 308 silent. You know, there's, like, so much of that shit, and it's just all make-believe. Like, at this point, if John Browning and Stoner didn't think of it, it's probably going to be incremental improvements from here on out, I believe. Yeah, I think that's right, until we get the plasma thrower, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah but, uh, Where you can just enough. throw raw electrons or whatever at something. Yeah, what, 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 what caliber do you do you personally shoot the most? Well, I vary. I I switch around a little bit. I I go I I'd tell you calibers that I do shoot a lot would be five four five and seven six two by thirty nine, five five six, three oh eight. I'm on kind of an eight millimeter mouser kick. Kind of wind mag and 338 the pooler kind of staples for me and 50 and of course like everybody I maybe shoot more 22 long rifle yeah I think 22 is is probably everyone's standard what what's your what's your favorite silent gun ammo or one or two maybe um combination you know, at the moment you shoot the guy was asking me that and oddly enough asked me that like yesterday and I think and I've never really thought of this because I've never really thought like which one's my favorite but I really like suppressed 300 wind mag in a bolt gun that is a very very good sounding caliber it's very enjoyable to shoot and I do enjoy a subgun. Some kind of nine millimeter subgun with the can is pretty phenomenal for me. And I, of course, I mean, again, I would say, and I'm not to be, you know, sound like, oh, well, I'm not really like super cool or whatever, but dude, I enjoy some suppressed rimfire. Yeah, suppressed rimfire, I think it's great. 9mm subgun has really been awesome. It's fun to shoot. Um, fun you know, to I've shoot. got. Yeah, you know, I think I kind of went down a different road. And it was just kind of the way our my career worked out. But, you know, I've got a Beretta Model 12S with an old uh, Tim Bixler AWC Mark 9 silencer, which is a 2-inch diameter coaxial super heavy silencer, barrel nut replacement. And that thing with 100 or subsonic ammo is silent. And um, I love shooting that. And I love the MP5 SD. The MP5 SD is just, and they're so cool, and it was so sexy when I was in the, you know, first getting in the gun. So it'll all, you know, it's like your first girlfriend or something. Yeah. Um, so I love that. Yeah. But, you know, you know, I went through the armorer's course for H&K in 1997. And... The HK Armors course for the weapons at that time, which were, you know, the MP5, MP5SD, um, the roller lock guns, the USP, 
I don't think the UMP was in that. No, it wasn't. Um, and that was a week-long course. Um, the three-shot burst trigger pack course I went through the next week was a one-week course just because of the 17 extra parts they crammed into a trigger pack. But once yeah. I became an armor for for H&K stuff and I realized how complicated and how expensive and difficult it was to maintain the MP5SD, it really made me love the previous generation submachine guns that are so simple that you could shoot a million rounds. The guns don't break. There's not, you don't have to, you know, check the size of the rollers and replace them. It's so simple. I mean, the Germans just do so much crazy stuff like granulated tungsten welded into the bolt carrier. Like there, you know, and what FN do? You know, they just make a, it's called a scar cut on the carrier, cut, remove some of the face, and you get the same result, anti-bolt bound. But shooting 9mm subgun is so fun. But once, you know, I started doing a lot of military business, like, you know, that's when we developed 300 Blackout, you know, at the request of the Navy commercializing 300 Whisper, because, you know, 9mm is, like, useless for killing people for the most part. I mean, if you watch another or first 48 hours on TV, you know, all those drug dealers are shot with 9mm. But, you know, pistols and subcalibers don't interest me anymore because I like doing my part, and I've been fortunate to help a lot of special operations to, like, sign stuff for them to kill bad guys. And they don't shoot anybody with a pistol. Right. Yeah. A pistol is kind of a necessary... I've Look, I've enjoyed some pistol shooting, but it's never been like at the top of my list. You know, I've kind of gone back and forth with pistols a little, but I've never really considered myself like a real pistol shooter guy. No, I used to shoot pistol competition and stuff when I was younger, and I liked it. But, yeah, once I got involved in making silencers and military stuff, it's like, well, the pistol isn't that interesting. Some of the pistol projects I've done for special operations has been cool because they used them for certain things, and that was interesting. Um, But, you you know, I hardly ever shoot it now. It's just so much harder to be good with a pistol, and I don't get the time that I used to have before children and all to to practice and train. And, um, you know, rifle's just easier in hunting now. You know, I just use rifle. But I love right. black because it's somewhere kind of in between. I can have a light, compact gun I can climb a tree with and a climbing sand, which we use here on the East Coast. And, you know, I'll use it close range and, you know, it gives me the ability to shoot a few hundred yards if I need to. Um, and that's cool. What, what's your favorite 22 you currently have? Damn, favorite 22. I did a – I guess you'll probably find this kind of funny, but – I did a very, very 80s retro Ruger 10-22 build where I put a Armisen OEG on it and a Ramline butt stock and SDR <laughs> fit. And I, like, searched, you know, all over the place for all this used shit they didn't make anymore. And, and uh, <laughs> for a reason. That's actually been pretty fun for me. It shoots pretty awesome. You know, it's like it runs good, and it's very unique. Everybody's like, oh, where'd you get that? And I'm like, dude, time machine. You got to search for some new stuff. If you want to duplicate one of these, I can't tell you where to get it. 
Yeah, and for people listening that aren't going to know most of what you said, it was like that Armisen is OEG, right? It's a it's a red yeah. dot, like in this cave. It's a site you can't see through. You have to use both eyes open. Um, they were very popular about 20, 25 years ago. And Ramline did plastic stocks for the 1022. Yours fold, I take it. What's that? Your Ramline buttstock folds. I imagine. Oh, yeah. No, it's the old, it's like the Gen 1. It folds, but it doesn't have the adjustable length of pole, and it takes the little paper box of cartridges sticking the side. Oh, that's off. cool. <laughs> I searched for a couple months and found, like, a Mitchell teardrop 50-round mag and everything. Oh, more. yeah. So it's just like, dude, it couldn't be any more freaking 80s. <laughs> yeah, those Mitchell mags, they had a rubber belt in them that carries the cartridge. Yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. Um, what else? What else? You got any questions for me while I'm thinking of things? No, I think you've pretty much covered pretty well everything you're doing, and I like the feel of it, and I say to you, it wouldn't be a question to be just do keep doing what you're doing. Oh, well, man, thank you. I appreciate it. And same to you guys. And, um, yeah, so I'm excited for you. I'm glad the industry's turning up for all of us. And, uh, yeah, keep being you, man. You make, you make the industry a lot more fun for me. Um, well, super kind of you to say, I appreciate any kind words. I means a lot coming from you to me. No, well, well, thank you, and uh, come out here to the East Coast and see us, man. Um, or maybe I'll just book a hunt in Utah and make you go with me. Dude, I'd do it. All right, I'll fake I'll work. or whatever. I'll tell everybody I'm getting a hysterectomy or something, and I can't come into the office. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Well, hey, thanks for the time, and um. I really appreciate it, and I look forward to, to hanging out with you again soon, man. Hey, brother, thanks for the call. Nice to talk to you. Same here. Bye. Hey, bye.